Hello, it's Simon here. Before we board the giddy carousel of pop, I just wanted to let you know that we had some technical issues during the recording of this episode. And not one, but two of our three microphones stopped working, so the final three minutes are a bit lo-fi, but hopefully that won't spoil or impair your ride on the carousel. Here we go. Hello and welcome aboard the Giddy Carousel of Pop. This is a podcast all about the now magazine for pure pop people, better known to you and me as Smash Hits, the music magazine which ran from 1978 to 2006. And what we do is take an old issue of the mag and have a good look through it. I'm Simon Galloway and with me as ever is Gavin Hogg. Hello and hello to everyone in Norway. Oh yes, hello. Currently number one in the Norwegian charts, so thank you if you're listening over there. The giddy pop capital of the world. Absolutely. (laughs) And our guest waiting to join us on the carousel is an academic, the author of several books about pop music and culture, and he's also a radio broadcaster to boot, Simon Philo. Hello, thanks for the invitation to ride. Welcome along. Now, Simon has chosen the issue that we're looking at today, which takes us all the way back to February 1979, issue four to be precise, which was the last monthly edition of The Hits before it went fortnightly. And if you want to read along with us, you can do just that, thanks to a couple of amazing websites, Brian McCloskey's Like Punk Never Happened, or the Smash Hits Remembered website. You'll find links to this edition in the show notes, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that feature pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of Smash It's. And you'll also find these links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, and on our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Just search for The Giddy Carousel of Pop or at giddypoppod. Now, it becomes quite obvious very quickly that this issue was actually published in January 1979. So it's that old magazine industry thing of putting the next month's date on the cover that's clouding the issue of when this one actually came out. So before we clamber aboard the carousel, let's set the scene and find out what each of us was up to in January 1979. Gavin. Okay, so uh, at this time, I would have just been coming up to my ninth birthday. Uh, we'd not long moved from Leamington to Sullyhall yeah. uh, in the Midlands. And music was very much at the periphery of my life then. Um, I'd only bought my first single with my own money was earlier on in 1978, A Taste of Agro by Baron Knights. Top of the pop staples. And, you know, I liked, I liked the comedy and novelty kind of songs at that age. So I only had three records. I had the Baron Knights single I'd bought myself. A couple of years earlier, my auntie Beryl had bought me the Wurzel's brand new Combine Harvester. Seven inch, and um, and my granddad had given me uh, a Reader's Digest Jim Reeves flexi disc, <laughs> so I had one flexi, <laughs> but it wasn't a cool indie band or a punk band. It was Jim Reeves, so that was it. And my mum had an old record player from I guess from the fifties um, that did you know sixteen thirty three forty five seventy eight, but my mum was um, born severely deaf. However, she liked. Nina and Frederick, if any listeners have heard of them, uh, who were a kind of quite mainstream, folky act from Scandinavia in the, I think, late 50s, early 60s. So she had a lot of their EPs and uh, a load of Gilbert and Sullivan operas, like LPs. But that was the musical inheritance that I'd got. So <laughs> so for that reason, music was not, not really a massive part of my life. I was more really into, um, you know, collecting football stickers and Subutio and riding my bike around. However, probably the main way I had of listening to music, because we didn't even have a radio in the house at that time, it was very... It was another year or two before um, I started listening to radio more and watching Top of the Pops. I'd watch it occasionally, but it wasn't appointment TV at that age. But... The house next door to us, it was a little semi-detached house, and there was Eileen and her daughter, Julie, who was three or four years older than me, so, you know, quite cool. When you're an eight-year-old lad, there's a 12-year-old girl living next to you. And we kind of shared the wall, as it were. She was on the other side of the wall. And she had a lot of friends around, uh, you know, after after school in the afternoons and the evenings, and they would play. The main two records I remember, in fact, probably the only two records they played were Dean Friedman's uh, Well Well Said the Rocking Chair, which had Lucky Stars on it, which right. I knew from telly and radio. So they used to play that a lot. And um, Grease, you know, uh, anything with Olivia or uh, Travolta on, they'd play. So I would listen to a lot of stuff. And then they'd talk to me through the wall. I was like a, a bit of a novelty with <laughs> this like, kid who lives on the other side of the wall. Sounds like a good setup for a kid's TV series. It was, yeah, very much so, yeah, yeah. So the, she was really my main conduit for listening to new, new music at that time. As I say, it was... It would be another couple of years before I started buying Smash It's and probably even from, from this date, this, from this magazine that we're uh, looking at, 
it was probably another year before I started taping things. I didn't get a tape player until a bit later on and then taping stuff. So I'm aware of, you know, obviously all the acts that are in there. I've heard most of the records that we're talking about retrospectively, but at the time, probably not so much really. That's where I was at then. Okay. And Simon, what about yourself? Okay, so I was 12 and a half at Christmas, 1978, 79. And I was just coming off the back of a, of a year which had seen me starting to more consistently, persistently purchase records uh, and take more interest in music. I bought my first single in 1974, but I wouldn't say that I was a regular buyer until 1978. So 78, the year of 78, partly for the reasons you were talking about as well, because Greece, for example, was such a big thing and Saturday Night Fever as well, uh, just everywhere. And I'm sure that played its part in bringing more music into the house. My father didn't particularly, wasn't particularly interested in music, but my mum very much was. And so she had Saturday Night Fever, she had Grease, she had um, Arrival by ABBA. And I think that kind of inspired me as well to, uh, to get involved and get interested in music. I wasn't buying lots of singles, but, uh, but I was taping. Uh, no one's listening to this, are they? I was taping a lot. Uh, <laughs> you killed music. I, I did. I was responsible for killing music, I must admit. Um, but obviously I was very selective because at this time, you know, proper, nice stereo sound was only available if you were home taping at certain times in the, uh, in the week. Hence the chart shows appeal, I think, between... I think it had just gone to five o'clock to seven o'clock, so mm. two hours of yeah. When it switch over to VHS, and that was happening as well. I yeah. think I think Simon Bates took over in the summer of 1978, so there was a ready supply of of singles because it was. I was very much all about singles. I did buy a few albums, but uh, um, so I'd say that 78 was really the beginning uh, of my record buying, and that's why I was kind of also interested in this particular edition because obviously a lot of it is retrospective it's kind of looking back on what a wonderful year 78 was so i'd have kind of have to agree with that really but yeah so um i was at school um and uh, we talked about school days as well i'd moved schools i was going to a school that was quite a way away from where i lived i wasn't boarding or anything like that but it was a long journey and the people who used to take me because my parents didn't take me some neighbors took me uh, they had one mixtape (laughs) <laughs> and that mixtape was a particular week in 1978. Mm. So every morning, and this carried on for not just 1978, <laughs> but 79, they only had one tape, and it was a, a week that had Dancing in the City and uh, Car 67. And so I, I got to know those songs really well. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, didn't do any harm, because I think 78 is still probably my favourite year for, for pop. So uh, yeah, another reason for choosing... January 1979. And was Smash It's on your radar at all? Most definitely, yes. I was kind of waiting. I didn't know it at the time. I was waiting for Smash It. Um, As a boy who liked pop music, it was ideal, really, because you could, obviously, there were, and I occasionally did buy Look In, um, there were magazines that were kind of pop-focused, but they were also, they tended to be kind of girl-focused as well. So uh, to have a magazine that was actually committed to pop uh, and to appreciate pop from a perspective. I mean, not that it was gendered necessarily, but uh, um, but it kind of welcomed, onto the carousel, it welcomed lads who liked pop as well because there wasn't really a place that you could find that kind of spoke to you about pop if you were a, a boy that liked pop and you were in your teens. Um, you couldn't go to Enemy, you couldn't go to Melody Maker because they simply weren't interested in pop. So that's one of the reasons why, as I say, I was waiting for Smash Hits and bought it from the very first edition. Yeah. Um, as for me, I was five years old when this edition of Smash Hits came out. So this is right at the outer edge of my memory that I can recall. But my sister was buying Smash Hits at this time, she was buying it from issue one. And uh, she's six years older than me. And we were sharing a bedroom at this time, bunk beds. So she had this pile of smash hits in the bedroom. And looking through this and some others from uh, other issues from around this time, it's really, a really strong recall, just really like just being plunged back 
into into that bedroom. We lived in a, a semi-detached Victorian house in Sheffield, very damp and cold, no central heating. And my recollections of these that I may have not even thought about for years just absolutely plunged straight back there in such a strong, strong way that it's been, yeah, quite... Quite strange. Look, looking back, at and the, it was a very cold winter as it, well. It was. It was a cold winter, incredibly um, cold. Yeah, bicycle race by Queen had been in the charts at the end of '78, and I remember that because it was the coldest winter that we'd had since um, well, the coldest winter of the '70s and the coldest winter I think from 196 since 1962-63, and we had this big long line of icicles that had formed outside the the living room window, and so we used to sing "Icicle Race," not "Bicycle Race." <laughs> um, so, See, pop can do that. It can do the, <laughs> it can do the Pro- Proustian rush thing. It can, you know, yeah. the Smashes can do that as well, can't yeah, it? You know? Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, Smashes was very much part of my growing awareness of pop music that was happening at that time. I was no stranger to to music. I'd always been obsessed as a kid. Inherited. I'm youngest of five kids, so I'd inherited lots of records uh, as as siblings had grown tired of them, and you know, and, and just left them somewhere. And I just go around like a little magpie, scavenging these things up. But for for Christmas that year, one of my brothers bought me um, a record box, so a singles box that hold fifty singles, and in it were two records to get me going. Um, it was Taste of Agro by, hey. <laughs> by the good Fantastic. old Baronites. Good entry-level stuff there. Yeah, yeah. And the other one was um, Christmas in Smurfland, the Smurfs. And so they, they were the first two singles in the box. And I decided that the other records I'd got couldn't go in this box. Weren't allowed. It had to be new stuff that I was getting from then on. So it was my first year at infant school. And walking down to school every day, I was going past the newsagent who had an ex-jukebox uh, singles rack, a little carousel thing. And so several times a week, I would go in there and buy a single. And that's how I started growing my collection. By the end of the year, that the box that would hold 50 singles was full. And it was all stuff from 1979. From the Giddy Carousel. From the Giddy Carousel, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> the Giddy Carousel of the newsagents. Um, so these things that I'd previously been aware of that all seem to be, you know, music just kind of existed and Top of the Pops just kind of existed. But it was reading the smash hits was helping me bring it all together. Mm-hmm. So I was starting to get this this wider awareness of, of what it was all about. So I, I would say that, you know, 1979 was year zero for me in terms of deciding what I liked and going out and, and buying that. So even though it's at the outer edges of my memory, this is where it all starts for me uh, in 1979 with Smash Hits and that empty record box that I soon filled up. So let's get stuck into this edition of Smash It. It's just 32 pages, so it's a very slim issue. And I think it's very much in embryonic form. But there's a little giveaway. Uh, well, it's not a giveaway at all. It's quite explicit. When you look on the on the contents page, there's a little note here from the editor, Chris Hall, which was Nick Logan under a pseudonym. And it teases that there's going to be some big news at the beginning of his editor's letter. And then he gets to it at the end there. Right then, here's the big news. Starting from the next issue on sale Feb 8th, Smash Hits will become a fortnightly publication. That is, you'll be able to buy Smash Hits every two weeks instead of waiting a whole month. We've got some amazing ideas lined up to hit you with throughout 1979. And believe us, Smash Hits is going to be the hottest pop magazine there's ever been. And he really wasn't wrong. Um, no, I think, when, I think when, it's right. Yeah. It makes good on its promise, I think, yeah. doesn't it, really, there? Yeah. So, and, uh, and even though maybe amazing, sensational and outrageous things are not to be found in this particular not edition. Not this particular edition, though. Yeah. No. It's, it's quite safe and, <laughs> and, and stayed. Um, um, but he's not wrong in about places. What, what lies ahead, really. Yeah. Um, but we'll come on more to that because there's other parts of, of this issue that point the way to where Smash It's would go. Um, so the front cover, we've got new wave nerd Elvis Costello kind of giving us his best sulky stare against the very uh, vivid yellow background and win 10 Elvis Costello albums. Um, I'll just notice this edition cost uh, 25p. It's got a whopping words to 18 top singles in there. Uh, and also you've got uh, features on Elton John, Rachel Sweet, Funkadelic, and a uh, colour poster of The Clash. Strangely not, so we're talking about this, strangely not 
a feature on Elvis Costello, who is the cover star. No, star, which is, no, uh, you know, yeah. He's well, everywhere else, isn't it? He's, a, he's in the magazine in various places, isn't he? Yeah, and so you look to find <laughs> what's going on with Elvis Costello. You get a few pages in. It's when copies of his album and a radio cassette player. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be disappointed as a Costello fan, wouldn't you? Yeah. There's a gig. There's a gig review, which is in the gossip section, which we may get to yes. later on. Yes. But, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. but yes, it's strange that there's no feature on. On, yeah, on Elvis, but that seems to be the thing. I think the the very first issue, which was not even considered issue one, but it was the the pilot edition, uh, got Plastic Bertrand on the front, and that was win the album. So it wasn't even a feature. So yeah, the, the features in this are, are quite slim um, when we get to them. But as it says, there's 18 song words in there. And in 32 pages, that means they're really, really cramming them in. So we get, first of all, Leo Sayer, Rain in My Heart, a cover of the uh, Buddy Holly song. So I think Leo, he's, uh, he's, he's struggling a bit on the uh, Giddy Carousel at this point. He's had a big hit in 76 with You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. And then he's, he's on, he's off. I think uh, his career would be quite patchy. Transatlantic um, number one in 77 with When I Need You as well. was yeah. number one in both. But yeah, maybe, maybe Dumper. Is calling? Yeah, because once you hit the new decade, some of his singles don't even reach the charts. But he does, and I remember this, he has a TV series in uh, in the UK yeah. uh, in 83 and 84. So light entertainment. Uh, yeah, light entertainment uh, beckons. beckons for, for Leo. Um, now an Aussie, apparently. Yeah, and if you check out the video playlist, so we put together a playlist of all the songs that are mentioned in the magazine, and it's very Top of the Pops heavy, it leans on that. It starts off with Leo, of course, because he's the first song in the magazine. He's wearing a lovely Starskin Hutch-style cardigan in there, so that's something to look out for. And then next lyric, King Rocker by Generation X. Again, a band that I only knew from looking at the pages of Smash Hits. Wouldn't have really heard this song, possibly would have seen it on Top of the Pops but that would have been as far as it went for me. Well, that Top of the Pops performance is a memorable Top of the Pops performance, one of those ones you talk about afterwards, and it's because Billy Idol's miming is atrocious. (laughs) It was so bad that it was a topic of conversation the day afterwards. So it wasn't maybe the one that uh, Billy Idol would have wanted people to be uh, sort of talking about afterwards, but uh, a very memorable performance of King Rocker because he is just, I don't know what he's on, but he is so behind in terms of the miming, it's uh, risable. Yeah, I mean, it's not what you would expect from a band that would be considered a punk band. They're not giving it all that, are they? they, they no, they I mean, he's, performance again, it's like he's just that, the kind of cartoon sort of punk that uh, was made for Smash Hits in some ways, yeah. and uh, and Smash Hits readers. But yeah. I, I think, you know, Top of the Pops, talking about Top of the Pops, I mean, they're, they're, their favourites seem to be Sham 69, so uh, they were always on. So a particular kind of punk was obviously acceptable. At the BBC. When I looked at the lyrics, I'd not realised before, it's a song about Elvis having a fight with John Lennon, isn't it? it? To see who's the best, who's the king rocker. (laughs) And uh, that passed me by. So, yeah, uh, yeah, like you say, not a very punk thing maybe to sing about, really. No, Um, it's not singing about anarchy. And and then, obviously, uh, Tony James was in them. And it it seemed like a long... At the time when Zig Zig Sputnik came out, it felt like it was a long... Generation X was so long ago. But looking back now, it's only a a matter of a few years, really, isn't it? You know, whatever it is. But then I was, I was looking at a picture of Zizi Sputnik and I can't remember, was it Neil X, I think, had a big, like, blonde quiff, just like Billy Idol. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's a link there, you know, mm. with, um, with Zizi Sputnik. But I think at this time, I mean, uh, well, what Smash Hits needs is a pop star, yeah. a real pop star. OK, maybe Billy Idol wasn't that. Or maybe it would become that, but uh, I guess in a way they, they might be casting around for, you know, well, who can we kind of pick, who yeah. can we choose so that we don't have to have... Elvis Costello on the front or whatever. Yeah, um, you you do get that feeling as well because the song lyrics that are in there are from quite a a wide range, wide variety of of styles. Leo Sayer, Generation X, uh, Olivia Newton-John, Frankie Miller, Shalimar, Nick Lowe, and it kind of carries on like that. Even even get Manhattan Transfer and, um, what's his name, Gerard Kenny, New York, New York. So it doesn't quite have the vision yet. And also, you do have this, it's it's January 79, and you must remember what it used to be like. The top 40 after Christmas was a bit like a no-man's land. Yeah. Because you still had those songs hanging around that had been the big Christmas hits. So it didn't be, move much. Yeah, it be Ma- Mary's Boy Child yeah. Was, yeah. was the big one for Christmas 78. And when you look at the top 40, those first few weeks of January, there's not a lot happening. So it's almost like with these lyrics, they're sort of like mopping up the things that they maybe haven't covered yet or that aren't 
necessarily Christmas, although you do get a Christmas song in here, um, the, yes. the lyrics for the Eagles' Christmas. It's like the drawing a line and then, like, after this, right, we're going to start properly, yeah. you know. Yeah, so it is tying up the loose ends of 78, mm. I think, with the lyrics there. But, yeah, yeah, you get Olivia Newton-John. And like you said earlier, absolutely inescapable, the whole yes. Grease thing yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in 1978, along with Saturday Night Fever. Um, I do distinctly remember those songs from Greece just being on top of the pops forever and a day. It'd just yeah. be, you know, summer nights again, again, again. The ONJ songs are written by the same person, John Farrer, who wrote You're the One That I Want. Oh, so uh, right. so the, the one that's featured in, the, yeah. in this particular edition as well. Again, I mean, this is about Smash. It's not top of the pops necessarily, but yeah. uh, when uh, that famous Boomtown Rats, when Rat Trap mm. gets to number one, what does Bob Geldof do on, you know, he tears a tear. This is very good for, for podcasts, obviously. Uh, he tears a photo of, of Travolta, doesn't he? You know, yeah. at the beginning of the song, you know, because they have dethroned the king and queen of pop in 1978. This was November 1978. Yeah. Um, and in a way, the rats, pretty similar to Billy Idol and, and Generation X, they were kind of uh, smash hits, kind of appropriate yeah. kind of punk. The acceptable face of it. Yeah, pop punk, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah. One of the first albums I had was Tonic for the Troops. You know, they were my first kind of love, really, the rats. Um, but it could have been Gen X easily. Yeah. Uh, well, just tying it back to some recent news. So it's, it's beginning of 2020 when we sat down recording this. And in the New Year's Honours list of 1979, Olivia Newton-John was made an OBE, and in the New Year's Honours list for 2019, she's been made a dame. Yeah. So Not before time. Yeah, so just tying it together there with a little thread in time there for Olivia Newton-John. And, of course, at 78, she was arguably the biggest pop star in the, alongside Travolta on the planet, you know. And, and then, much like, well, a few years later, would, Physical would be the biggest selling single in America in 1981. So not Dumper Bound. No, not at all. Not, <laughs> not joining Leo, uh, Leo Sayer. <laughs> Of course, disco was big news. It, it is quite prominent as you work through this edition of the hits, which, well, as we come to it, here's their review of 1978. And it's split into two sections. You get um, disco and soul, and then you get it split into rock and pop. So Cliff White, who was um, a writer for The Enemy, takes care of disco and soul. And that was very much his bag. He was very much into James Brown, all the P-Funk kind of stuff. And so this is the the, the kind of stuff that, that he looks at and wouldn't necessarily be in the sorts of things that would have been appearing in, in the charts. I mean, One Nation Under a Groove, you've got that in there. He mentions Earth, Wind and Fire. Commodores, but some of the stuff it seems quite off the radar yeah. in terms oh, Stargard, of what, what, for example. Yeah, yeah I in mean, terms of what should be in a pop yeah, magazine. Yeah, I think which way is that? Well, that was a was it used for Soul Train or something? It was one of kind of the title song for that. Um, yeah, so so Stargard, for example, wouldn't be familiar certainly to me reading it at that particular moment in time because they weren't in our they weren't in our charts and radio. Perhaps that's, that's coming a bit later. Radio is that Jack and Jill? Mm, yeah, uh, you can tell that Cliff. White is a aficionado, can't you? You can tell he's kind of, you know, that's his thing. Particularly the kind of P-Funk uh, side of things as well. At the beginning, he talks about some movies, and I've not heard of uh, one of them. He talks about Saturday Night Fever in Greece, which obviously oh, we yeah. all know about, but thank God it's Friday. He's saying it's one of the big three movies of the year. I don't remember that at all. What, does anyone remember what that was? Maybe <laughs> he's bigging up its role. Star Dino Ross? Yeah, I think he mentions it later uh, on. He says that she was in it. Yeah, yes. More of a kind of collect, the collection of performances rather than oh, was it? rather a, than a movie. A, a, oh, okay, a movie. that makes sense. Um, but yeah, no, of, of the of the what do they call it? He calls them Tower Infernos uh, of uh, <laughs> of disco on on screen. Uh, the, the, the lesser of the three, I think. Yeah, you know, okay. clearly. Yeah. Oh, that includes Greece in that, doesn't he? But uh, I think the glare and emission for me in this one is he doesn't mention Chic, who had been. Quite big in seventy eight, and yeah, seventy nine was there is, is a bigger year for them, yeah. I think. But yeah, no, that that does seem a bit odd. But again, as an aficionado, maybe he's making some kind of judgment about what is and what isn't. <laughs> what isn't uh, um, good? I so he's preferring the Commodores over Sheik. Well, yeah, maybe he's thinking of Brick House rather than uh, Three, uh, times Three Times a Lady, which was a massive hit in seventy eight, wasn't yeah. it? I should say that I think he he gets it a bit wrong in terms of. They're, I mean, they're pretty good at their predictions in some ways, but uh, when he says that uh, a disco is, is receiving some slow acceptance from the suspicious rock fraternity, well, you know, 1979 would see the rock fraternity fight back 
and effectively kill off disco. Yeah, well, certainly in America, that's when the whole disco sucks. Yeah, the Comiskey Park thing in, in the exploding records in front of thousands of people, <laughs> the disco records and, uh, and riots and things like that. So yeah. the death of disco, really. But I wouldn't have thought that that necessarily had an impact on how disco was received in the UK. No, no, perhaps not. No, no. I think it was something, as you say, that was largely confined. But it was it was something that related to the rock press and, and the rock press on both sides of the Atlantic tend to have the same kind of view and the same kind of attitudes, i.e. anti-disco. Mm. Um, but no, no, I, I don't. As, you, I mean, as we've said, that Chic have a massive year in 1979. And what will be the big first big hit of 1979 it'll be heart of glass so so perhaps not no but uh, uh, but by the end of 1979 disco is disco is finished really isn't it yeah, yeah. so certainly uh, disco how we knew it yeah so i was looking back um there's a list on the internet of all the cover stars of the nme uh, it doesn't necessarily have images of, of those covers, but it's got a list of them all and i went through 1978 and looking at all the artists that were featured and not a single artist on there could be even remotely considered disco mm. and soul. So this really seems to be its only way of, of getting some outlet in the press. And then it's ha- had to be the pop press that's yeah. covered this this aspect of things. Yeah, absolutely. And why not as well? I mean, if they, they do make a good point about the Rolling Stones, for example, and, and, and Miss You, which is... And again, we see that with Blondie as well. Kind of, these are a rock band or a new wave band who are... Doing a crossover. Doing a crossover, you know. So they they clearly haven't got a problem with disco. The only people who've got a problem with disco are the, you know, the rock press. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you move on to the uh, roundup of rock and pop songs from 1978. Again, penned by Chris Hall, Nick Logan, under his pseudonym. And I think he's more on the money with his look back at the year. And it certainly points the way forwards as to where Smash Hits would be going, and they do that with the list of their um, top 45s of 1978 in no particular order of preference. And I think this really kind of, it's almost like the manifesto for what Smash Hits was going to become. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were staking their claim, marking out their territory, uh, and saying, this is what we're going to do. Because on that uh, list of uh, 45s there, you get Blondie alongside the Buzzcocks, Bee Gees, The Clash, Elvis Costello, a lot of disco things on the list as well. So it's really mixing up the new wave and the disco that would really form what was going to be in the pages of Smash It's from here on in. I think that's what I was saying at the beginning about why it was so appealing, why Smash It's was so appealing to me. Because I think most people aren't as tribal as maybe the rock press, for example, imagines. And I think that the, the smash hits embrace, what do they say? So so much good music and so many different shades. Make your own list. It'll be the perfect choice. Mm. That's fantastic. Oh, a fa- fantastic thing to write. Mm. It's a license to like what you wanted to like and not be kind of dictated to. Um, and also rock and pop is alongside disco and it's all, it's all pop. The thing about this also is it, it's about singles. So, yeah, I think um, Nick Logan, pretty much on the money with what he writes in looking back at 1978 and marking out Smash It's territory. He's drawing that line. This is ours. This is what we do. Just going back to the, the link between Smash It's and singles, I interviewed Mark Ellen once about Word magazine, and I remember him saying that the magazines that he'd been involved with, they always had to be kind of like a a technological or a physical object to kind of go alongside it. So he said that when they'd launched Word, it was when like MP3 players and iPods were coming out and Mojo was all about kind of box sets and fitting into that and Q was CDs. And although it wouldn't have been sort of explicitly done, obviously Smash It's really built on the success of the single and the fact that, like you said, there were so many great singles. And Smash It's would never work five years earlier when it was all about albums and stuff, you know, and it had to be... It was just that the time was right, really, wasn't it? You know, it was a fertile period for singles and smash it's just the right time, right place, wasn't it? Um, Really interesting. I think that's what makes this edition of Smash It so important in that it is the last of the monthly issues. He says it's going to be fortnightly and he's looking back at 78 and he's just picking out all those popular songs from the year. You like these? Yes. this This is the sort of thing that we're going to be covered. So... In a way, a pivotal issue of the hits. 
So let's move on now to um, one of the features. And the features do seem quite um, light in the way that they're written. But this is a little feature on Rachel Sweet, who was in the charts around this time with her cover of the sax tune Baby, or B-A-B-Y, Baby. She was 16 years old when she had a hit with that. On Stiff Records, part of the stiff tour that travelled around the country by train and it's got little um, there's another Elvis Costello connection yeah. as well isn't it Every, everything is he's plugged into everything Everything's in some way but not actually that. himself is being featured <laughs> it's got a little picture of her on the train doing her homework because she doesn't leave school until she's 18 so she's got to keep up with um, with lessons there but yeah, there's a rather dodgy video she's wearing like what appears to be a school school uniform in the in the video for a B-A-B-Y it is a little bit questionable isn't it yeah. I mean, Bearing in mind that she's 16 years old and she's kind of vamping it up to the yeah. camera a little bit. Yeah. But also what struck me listening to it is how country she sounds. And it's no surprise when you read through the piece that when she was 12 years old, she was basically making country records in Nashville. It just seems curious that she's hitting the charts here with soul songs. I think she did a cover of I Go To Pieces, the, the, the Northern Soul tune, and there's a version of Everlasting Love as well. I mean, at the time... I'm. I have to admit, Rachel Sweet has completely passed me by. Yeah. Um, I mean, this song was uh, this B A B Y, just about scraped into the top forty, and that yes. was it, wasn't it? I mean, nobody ever heard from her. The interesting things about her are kind of who, in a way, who produces the next album, which is Martin Rushant, um, and uh, apparently she ended up graduating from Columbia University, and uh, she's a big wheel in TV, American TV now. Yeah. Or I was going well, I. I had a quick look online. She's doing all right because it said in 2010. <laughs> I'm glad about that. Yeah. She, yeah, yeah, she sold a house called uh, Los Pavoreales, which used to be Madonna's home. She sold it for $4,895,000. Okay. So I don't think she's short of a bob or two. No, so, not at all. You know, so let's not worry about the yeah. fact she didn't really have any bigots. And then you get on to some more lyrics and going full on disco for these two. You've got Destiny by the Jacksons. And September by Earth, Wind and Fire, a song that was always special to me because they're singing it about my birthday. Do you remember the 21st night of September? Of course I do, it's my birthday. <laughs> Thank you, Earth, Wind and Fire. Fantastic. <laughs> I'll never forget your birthday from yeah. now on. I'll yeah. I do like it's putting the uh, the lyrics here. To, was it ba-do-oo, So you can never accuse Smash It's of missing out any vocal refrains. I was quite grateful for that, I think, because me and my brother used to do kind of performances for our parents. Um, and whilst we were better mimers probably than Billy Idol, we were, you know, we needed to know the words. Yeah. So, um, and we used Smash Hits lyrics for that yeah. purpose. So we needed every single detail. So even if when uh, Maurice White's, well, you think he's doing a bit of vocal improvisation, you've got it all written down there. Yeah, exactly, yeah. We couldn't do the levitation and all that kind of stuff that they used to do <laughs> with their spectacular stage. We need to just mention the video briefly as well. Oh, well, oh Psychedelic yes. takes from Space Ahoy. Yeah. <laughs> They're amazing. What is that? What is that effect? It's just a weird... Because that was everywhere. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of like a video feedback effect. So um, so like you, you see it... Comet's in... Tale or something. Yeah, yeah. Kenny Everett was always doing yeah, it. Yeah, that's the Kenny Everett show was... Yeah, so so you'd see it um, probably first of all in something like Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm. It was used as a special effect quite a lot in Doctor Who. The opening, yes. the, the top of the pops would end up using it. Yeah, with their in-studio performances yeah. as well, wouldn't they? On Doctor Who, they would use it as part of the opening sequence. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, you've got the full colour glory of Earth, Wind, and Fire. I've forgotten all about the Egyptian theme going yeah. on there. Although Maurice White does look as though he's wearing some sort of baseball or American football inspired mm. Egyptian. Yeah. <laughs> um, design. So, you know, he's, he's channeling a couple of different things there. The Jacksons, whose lyrics are on the same page for Destiny, and the video to that, they are dressed in a very similar way, and they're dressed in a similar way to Funkadelic as well. So there is a kind of... Yeah, but... There's the, a fashion. The, there is, but the Jacksons are very... The, their their flares are questionable, I would say. Uh, Funkadelic and Earth, Wind and Fire are getting away with it because they're being outlandish, top to toe. Mm. The Jacksons, it's, it's a bit kind of experimental and jazzy on top, but the, the strides are a little bit pedestrian. Not surprising, really, because Jacksons are just flexing and just reaching out on their own at this yeah. point. They're kind of going their own way. They've left Motown. And uh, and actually, I, I have a soft spot for this because Destiny was one of those first albums I bought. And, of course, later that year, get um, Off the Wall, Michael Jackson, which... Would you consider that disco or not? Or is that a, another thing? The whole Quincy Jones 
thing. It seems like a, it's almost like a level above. Yeah. So you've got Quincy Jones doing Michael Jackson, Brothers Johnson, mm. George Benson, all within the next couple of years. Uh, I mean, Destiny featured Shake Your Body Down to the Ground, which is a, you know, yeah. or, or Blame It on the Boogie, which is yeah. classic disco songs, aren't they, really? But uh, yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, there's something a little bit more polished. Yeah. about off the wall, a bit more produced. So it didn't necessarily get hit by the whole disco sucks thing. It was sort of like, no, they, they were no. beyond that no. in, in a way. No. Obviously, we, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, <laughs> we, we know that's, that's, that's probably not the case, is it? That actually Jackson kind of rides it out, really. Yeah. Uh, Jackson's don't, but uh, probably because Michael Jackson goes solo. I don't know. Yeah. And we get to another feature, this one about Elton John and his relationship with Rod Stewart. Who is Sharon and why is Phyllis saying such wicked things about him? But I think before we discuss the article itself, I think it's possibly the photos of Elton John. Guessing is it is that his home? I guess uh, so, yeah. I'm yeah. not sure. I'm not sure whether it is or not. But um, Who else would have a house like that? <laughs> With, like, yeah. The I big think, pop-up. Well, the fact that it looks like it and... did makes me believe that it can't be someone's house. But anyway, <laughs> they're obviously smashes. Are obviously pleased with it because it appears at the end, doesn't it? Yes, yes. They have a full full colour shot. Full of, colour on the back. So of Elton. So I think what we're seeing here is the effects of Elton's buying or purchasing addiction, as I think he later acknowledged. So there's lots of artworks dotted around, lamps, a designer, coffee table. There's all sorts of things going on. A little samurai model that Elton's uh, posing next to. And we, we were trying to find out what some of these things were. Yeah, because on, if you look on the back, there's a full-colour picture yeah. of him looking very much like the uh, the spoiled younger son of a Russian mafia don, <laughs> like in like baseball cap and trainers. And there's a strange, sort of quite surreal-looking picture to his the left as you look at the photo. Couldn't work out. It looks a bit Dali-ish, but it's not, I don't think it's a Dali. No. There's like a, it looks like a kind of a, an ape in a suit gazing out across a surreal landscape. I don't know what the hell's going on. It's very odd. I wanted to find out more, but I don't think we, we did put a thing on Twitter, but I don't think yeah. anyone could quite identify it. We've got, got a few suggestions. We've got some leads. And I've still not been able to actually qualify them, but the coffee table, uh, which is, well, it's a, it's a glass coffee table, uh, but the legs are a body of a person. So it's the, uh, somebody uh, on all fours uh, with the glass coffee table on top. That apparently is by a designer called Alan Jones. Yes. I found that out because on the internet you'll find that when Elton auctioned off all his uh, belongings and possessions and things in, in the late 80s, you can still get hold of the catalogue, the auction catalogue. Oh, and okay. in the one that's called, let me see in my notes here, Diverse Collections is pretty much all the stuff that was <laughs> in this these shots here. But the only one that I could actually f- definitely find the name of was that coffee table. So suggestions for that um, drawing, that illustration on the wall, uh, a French animation artist called René Lalou. Okay. Which kind of made sense a little bit because there was something about it that reminded me of Terry Gilliam. Yes. So we got that going on. But I wondered if it could be an artist called Alan Aldridge who did the artwork for Elton's album Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. Mm. And he did all those. There was a Beatles illustrated lyrics book. Oh, I know the one you mean, yeah. Did all the drawings in there. So I wondered if it could be something by that guy. But we don't know for sure. If you're having a look, it's on uh, the scans of the magazine. It's on page 15. Or you can look at the back cover. It's in colour there. You get it in a bit more detail, a bit closer in. So, dear listener, if you do know <laughs> who the artist is... Competition time. Uh, yeah, yeah, competition time. You, the prize is absolutely nothing, just the glory that you can reflect in if you can correctly identify the rather odd and surreal painting that Elton is posing next to. Well, next to him and the uh, little samurai doll that, that is... <laughs> It's It's just a ghastly mismatched. It really is terrible. There's no style or taste there at all. No, it's it's nothing like there's a a collection being curated here. It's just stuff, 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 stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever the opposite of curator is, is what's happened there. It's It's worth remembering that Elton's all over the place at this moment. He's seriously struggling, isn't he, with uh, exhaustion and other kind of issues. Yes, it makes makes reference to cancelling the tour due to exhaustion. And if you've seen seen the Rocketman film, we probably know 
know what exhaustion means. Yeah. Yeah. I think if, if it had been several years later in Smash Hits, it would have been exhaustion. Exhaustion. Yeah, they're not so, quite as confident at this point about... Uh, yeah. It's discussing his uh, relationship with Rod Stewart in this one. Do you have any uh, choice quotes that you want to, to pull out from this one? It's not, a, it's not a particularly long article, and a good half of it is taken up with his relationship with Rod Stewart, and it just seems yeah. like... An interesting, yeah. uh, particularly as Rod isn't there. I remember in later years, Morrissey did a great one with Pete Burns where they were on the on the yeah, cover so, together. Yeah, so but the they were there together yeah. and talking yeah. about their relationship, and it was really funny. But this is just some stuff that Elton's saying about Rod. Uh, they say stuff like, um, so it says, according to Elton, Rod's very funny, he makes me laugh. And I don't think he often realises how funny he is. He's the old tart, and I'm the vicar's wife. That's how I think of us, in a way. Interesting. I call him Tesco, and he calls me the Rover 2000. You know, once that is clean once a day, and then put back in the garage. Yeah, it's, it's an odd one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't quite... I was, in fact, I was looking through... Um, it sticks. It does well, stick. It does, right? it does yeah. stick with them, because they, they continue to relate to each other exactly that way, apparently, in terms of those names, Sharon and Phyllis. I was going to say, I popped into um supermarket this morning and I was doing a bit of shopping and I saw the Elton John autobiography and I thought, I wonder if there's much about Rod Stewart and there's there's a few bits and and there's a bit that I remember where it's talking about his marriage. When did he marry Renate? Was it about 83? Yeah, mid-80s. Like yeah, mid-80s. Yeah. And he says in there that um, Rod couldn't attend the wedding but he'd sent a telegram to him. <laughs> he said it said uh, something like, I know you're still standing but the rest of us are on the fucking floor. <laughs> I thought that was a great line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe reference there to people's surprise at Elton yes, there, yeah. settling down, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly he was quite an unpleasant character uh, in the 70s, if you read other interviews with him. Yeah. So he's, he's yeah. slagging off David Bowie, having a go at mm-hmm. lots of other people. So in this one, he's, this is actually him being quite kind, I think. This is Elton on a good day. It doesn't say who's who's written the piece. Um, no, no. So I was wondering if it's not actually a piece that they've got out and got or whether it's been some quotes have been supplied to them and they've kind of constructed a feature around that it's not really asking questions it's just elton talking which kind of mm. makes me a little bit suspicious that it's quite interesting i, I yeah. yeah elton didn't much care for brit brit eckland no, no. but but he does like alana <laughs> rod rod's latest wife that proposed film they were talking about which presumably never came uh, yes about. i was wondering about that they talk about yeah. that quite a bit it sounds quite like it could have been quite funny it could have been it? yeah it, it could have been yeah uh, <laughs> and also he said i could never go back to touring on a grand scale hmm. Hmm. <laughs> exactly yeah. roll on the 80s exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, when was it touring on a grand but scale, he is in a, he is in a bad place at this time he's he's actually in terms of his commercial success he's actually in a for him, a pretty bad place as well, really, yeah. isn't he? Because, you know, Song for Guy wasn't... was pretty dreary. And... Yeah, I mean, it's a decent-sized hit, but in terms yeah. of whether it's an enjoyable pop song or not... I mean, given that you, know, you mentioned Captain Fantastic, I mean, those albums, those run of albums in the early to mid-70s, they all went straight to number one in the States. Single Man 13 or something like that peaked in the States. Yeah. I mean, I should imagine there's some some concern there. Yeah. Of course, he split up with Taupin as well, so yeah. he's not working with him. And Rod, and Rod actually, he says Rod kindly pointed out basically that that I am struggling <laughs> as a, as a chart act. Uh, he says that in the uh, in the uh, yeah. I mean, it may not be an interview. I don't think it is an interview. I think you're right. I think it may well be kind of taken from. Uh, yeah. There's a famous uh, piece by Charles Shaw Murray around about the same time, I think, which is a, an extended interview with uh, with Elton John. What's interesting about that is just that it's a piece that really tells you much more about Charles Shaw Murray than it does about uh, right. Elton John. So at least it, 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 he's allowed to speak for himself, yeah. even if he's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, even if we're not quite sure what he's saying, what he's trying to, <laughs> trying to express. But, uh, Gav, do you want to talk us through the Rod and Elton film that mm-hmm. they were proposing? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. So it says, uh, right now, Elton and Rod are planning a film together that will explore life at the superstar level of the rock business. The idea is to start filming next summer when Rod Stewart has completed his current tour that takes him halfway around the world. Says Elton, the basic idea is of two superstars who are quite friendly but do everything they can to outdo each other. You could draw parallels with Stewart and myself in that respect, but that's not really what we're like. It'll be a film about the rock business that leans towards the funny side of it and some of the incredible things that go on. For example, if one wife gets a bigger bunch of flowers at the hotel than the other, there's hell to pay, and how they will travel in separate cars and how they might all pretend to like each other but really hate each other. 
If Rod and myself don't know what goes on around groups and managers and so forth, I can't imagine who does. Yeah, whatever happened to it, I don't know. I mean, it could have been mm. good. It may have been terrible. Quite possibly. <laughs> in a way, it does sound very smash hits, and I think yeah. you know, whilst the, 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 the kind of editorial voice doesn't that we're familiar with doesn't necessarily come through quite yet, in a way, the kind of Elton is providing, supplying some of that kind of smash hits perspective, that smash hits view yeah. on the world. Yeah. Um, it does sound like it could have been quite self-deprecating, which yeah, might have made I, it quite funny. I think know? that's kind of what I mean. It's yeah. self-deprecating, funny, you know, the ability to laugh at yourself yeah. and not take yourself too seriously. Yeah, and while that might be just a stage, might just call Elton on a good day, <laughs> um, given what we know about his 70s you know, persona. But yeah, I think it, it struck me as a very smash hits kind of, yeah, early like, smash yeah, hits, yeah. but it was kind of in. It was kind yeah, of appropriate, absolutely. as I say. That looking at it alongside this Charles Shaw Murray piece, I think it probably was in the NME about Elton John. It was much more snarky and much more kind of mm. allowing Elton to speak, but in order to kind of ridicule him and kind of you know hang himself, basically. Yeah. Um, this doesn't do that. It doesn't kind of necessarily. No, it focuses on, on the lighter side. Yeah, of things, yeah. And where, think... where he's actually having having a bit of fun. Um, and, and as I said, I think what what Smash Hits is really really needs really to cement its appeal and success I think is a, is a pop star a pop star who really embodies everything that Smash Hits kind of represents not quite got that with Elton but you know the kind of things that he talks about are the kind of things that I think David Hepp was, was talking about that in the last episode of, of Giddy yeah, Carousel talking wasn't about it? Martin Fry being yeah, a good pop star a good pop star and, and we don't have that at this point you know Gary Newman's going to come on come along in a few months and then but it's really Adamant who kind of brings that and that's yeah that's still nearly two years away yeah. And then we get a, a song by Paul Evans, which I, I don't recall this one at all. Hello, this is Joni. Oh, I like a phone song. Which I do is, like a telephone song. It's, it's a death disc combined with a uh, with a phone song. It is, so yeah, yeah. I have a theory about this song. Go on, then. Let's, right. let's, 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 we'll set up the, the, the premise of the song, first of all. So Paul has an argument with his girlfriend, Joni, wants to make amends to her, keeps phoning her, he keeps getting the same phone message. And then by the end of the song, turns out she's dead. And the only way they can carry on hearing her voice is to keep on calling that answer phone. Well, my theory is, first of all, just look at the stone-cold psychopathic eyes of Paul Evans for a start. Uh, right, okay. Evidence A. Evidence B. <laughs> Joni came over to my house last night, first verse. I drank a little too much red and we got into a fight. It's a bit of a drinker. It was a bit violent. I don't think Joni's dead. I think she's faked her own death to get away from him. Mm. And she's paid a friend to say, oh, just pop round and say, I was in a crash. I don't want to see <laughs> this guy again. He's a bit weird. In the performance, I guess it's Top of the Pops performance, he never looks at her, does he? We see her. I think she's on oh. closed circuit TV somewhere else in another room, another studio. <laughs> she's like, I'll come and sing on the song, but I'm not. Yeah, like, I don't want to be in as in, as in yeah. kind of court case kind of situation. Exactly. You yeah. don't have the unite in the same room as the yeah. accused. Yeah. Restraining order, perhaps. Yeah. Could be that, yeah. So, uh, yeah. There's uh, there's no charm. It's a horrible record, isn't yeah. it? There's no charm to it at all. No. You know, I love something like Leader of the Pack. You know, I like yeah. a good yeah. death disc. Yeah, yeah. A bit of camp to it and a bit of fun and drama <laughs> and melodrama. It's a very persistent oh, chorus. God. You get the idea after the second time. <laughs> yeah, so you could have yeah. skipped a couple yeah, of Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. I'm as sorry as he is, probably yeah. more. Yeah. And it, it, even Smash It's in the lyrics, repeat chorus, repeat chorus, <laughs> repeat chorus yeah. twice. Yeah. It wasn't one of those songs that we performed for... Uh, <laughs> uh, and then we squeeze in a few more lyrics. Again, three to a page on this one. Um, Who, What, When, Where, Why by the Manhattan Transfer. Can I just say, a couple of years ago, an event that I was promoting that Gavin was involved in actually we were doing a tribute to Marky e. Smith playing some of his records and I was uh, promoting it on the usual social media platforms I'd put the poster for the event on Instagram I put it on there a couple of times and both times a guy called I think he was called Helen or something like that liked it and when I looked at his profile it says um, original founding member of the Manhattan Transfer I remember you telling me about that yeah, yeah I'd forgotten about that I think, I think it's Alan Paul or something like that and it's like wow can you imagine what the Manhattan Transfer do the fall would have been like yeah <laughs> it would have been uh, totally wired yeah bingo masters breakout in yeah. four part harmony 
Yeah, amazing. Hit the supper club. Yeah. Uh, then we get onto the uh, a couple of pages of gossip, which would eventually, in time, become bits and would have its tongue firmly in its cheek. But at this point, it's more of a straightforward reporting of things that are, have happened and things that are going to be happening. Starts off with a little look at Elvis Costello's run of gigs at the Dominion. We call it the Dominion Cinema. Um, mm. I know it's a Dominion Theatre, bottom of uh, Tottenham Court yeah, Road. Yeah. They used to catch the bus around the, around the corner from there for many years. And Elvis is uh, seeing out 1978 with a, a run of shows there. It's not gossip, is it? It's a it's a gig review. Yeah. There's two gig reviews here, yeah. right. But again, maybe that Christmas thing meant that there wasn't much to... Uh, much to gossip about. To gossip about, I don't know. Something about the tone of Smash It's um, at this time, like, like running through a lot of the issue, is it's very... Um, it's a little bit kind of John Craven's news around a little bit explaining things and almost like reading old sleeve notes or something. Um, sort of the way it talks about this. A good example here is when it's talking about the um, uh, the Blockheads playing and it says, like Elvis's attractions, the Blockheads are a superbly polished band with sax player David Payne outstanding. As for Ian Jury, he's a picture of a man on the ascendant, full of confidence in his ability. It's got that kind of almost local newspaper style to it, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah. but, uh, I thought that was interesting because obviously its style would really develop over. Yeah, it hasn't found. Years. He hasn't yet found that voice, has it? But you, you can can see it, and you can maybe see it in the Elton thing, and you can see yeah, the, see the, it the in the editorial at the beginning. You yeah. can see some of that. You know, all that stuff about having a cold, and yeah. you know, I'm writing sniff, this sniff, sniff. sniff. And yeah. So there are bits of it. No pun, but equally you're right. I think that the tone sometimes is more kind of classic BBC or something. Yeah, very just informative, but with, uh, without that humour that, yeah, that yeah, developed yeah. later. And then there's a little mention of the Bay City Rollers. It says, for anyone still interested in Oh, wait, such so there's things, a bit of tone there, isn't there? Yeah, but, uh, you know, <laughs> the Bay City Rollers. Are, Bay City Rollers are currently in Los Angeles with their new singer. Quite odd finding them in, in there. I think they're the, probably the most poignant part of this is that it mentions the gig that uh, The Clash are doing and donating the money to Sid Vicious for his upcoming court case. Uh, This is the beginning of 1979 um, and by... Well, it was 2nd of February when yeah. Sid Vicious... I presume they got the money back. Uh, ...died, well... Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was... Um, Didn't end well. Yeah, quite interesting to to find that in there. It's quite direct with the, the language that they use. The ex-pistol is due to appear in court in New York in early 79, charged with murdering his American girlfriend. It'll be an unpleasant and expensive trial. And, of course, mm. it, it never, never came to trial. Uh, and then you get flashbacks, and looking back, he's talking about um, the death of Buddy Holly, mm. which I thought was a bit of a weird thing to do, jumping back 20 um, years, and why would the readers be, you know, pop kids be interested in what happened with Buddy? Who is Buddy Holly anyway? But then you realise, as it goes on, Leo Sayers' current uh, pop hit, Rain in My Heart, is a Buddy Holly cover. So it does kind of give a little bit of context there, but still, it's not necessarily the sort of thing that would uh, carry on in Smash It. So. I like, there's a, there's a little bit just above the uh, Bay City Rollers as well where they're talking about old wave, new wave collaborations, which yeah. I thought was quite interesting. They're talking about Ian Hunter's production on the New Generation X album, uh, and then the rich kids have asked Mick Ronson uh, to produce their album. And Tom Robinson has got Todd Rundgren to yeah. oversee his next album. Um, and obviously Rundgren was also just producing at that time Patti Smith's next album. So I thought that was quite nice, kind of looking looking back and, and seeing how um, that generation yeah. of uh, yeah. of stars, are, you know, kind of working with the sort of, I suppose, punk, post-punk going into new wave um, artists, whether they're trying to kind of cling on to coattails or... Whether it's a, it's a bit of a both, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think... I wouldn't with, say it's that cynical. Yeah, but. With Ian Hunter, he was a big hero to mm. a lot of the punk bands. Uh, you know, the Cla- well, the Mick Jones would yeah. go on to produce an album for Ian Hunter around about this time. And similarly, Mick Ronson, massively revered. Yeah. You know, you've you got to think that all these punk kids were all glam fans. Mm. So why wouldn't they get Ian Hunter mm. and, and Mick Ronson on board to produce stuff for them? You know, he's, he's kind of like... Hoping that a bit of that, bit of that fame and a bit of that glory will rub off on them, perhaps. And it's also indicative of that kind of open. It's there and it's obviously happening, but it's also kind of the fact that it's being acknowledged is part of Smash It's open kind of embrace of the the whole giddy carousel. Yeah, everything is is kind of open to. <laughs> so so what if they're you know impossibly aged at thirty four? You know they're still kind of they're still welcome. You know as we know from Elton John and Alice Cooper and you know featuring. Yeah, albeit you know we're still waiting for this, this one pop star to come forward. But uh, 
But in the meantime, we are, you know, we're open to everything, really, which was, again, which is kind of didn't make it liberating or, or permissible for me, but it was kind of important that it, yeah. it should be kind of open and uh, in its embrace of all things pop and identifying them all as pop and allowing you, in a way, kind of allowing you to kind of, you know, it's okay to kind of like all this stuff. And Yeah. Sorry, getting a bit serious. That's all right. You're, you're allowed to get a bit serious. <laughs> Taking pop seriously, I suppose, is really the kind of you know, the irony of it. Ways, but, uh... Uh, moving on now, another piece by Cliff White. We know what his bag is. It's all the disco and funk and things like that. And he poses the question, what is a funkadelic? It's all about the P-funk scene and all the uh, bands that are involved in that. It's a very convoluted network of musicians, bands, etc., etc. that he's doing his best to make sense of. But he starts the piece with Mommy, what is a funkadelic? Uh, which harks back to the early 70s. Mm. So it's not something that would have necessarily been on, on the radar of kids that mm. were reading this magazine. Again, it's that seriousness, isn't it? I'm yeah, like, I'm going to explain yeah. to you what is a funkadelic yeah, 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 and, yeah. Uh, yes. and, and kind of take you through the stages. I mean... As an adult, I, I to be I mean, you know, I, I like a bit of Funkadelic in Parliament, but I got a bit bored mm. trying to trace, what, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah So yeah, you think yeah. like a 12-year-old would be like, you yeah. know, skip that bit because yeah. it's, like you say, it's quite convoluted and, and complicated to keep track of, really. I'm not sure I'm any the wiser now. But... It's a good photo, though. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good photo, yeah. It is so a good that, photo. The visual thing is, is, is a key. I mean, again, you know, made for, made for smash hits in that respect, but a missed opportunity, I think, in terms of the words. We're getting towards the end of the magazine now. We've got a, uh, a couple of lyrics here. We've got um, Lay Your Love On Me by Racy, written by uh, Chin and Chapman, who are also doing good things with Blondie at this time, but I wouldn't necessarily say that they're doing great things mm. with Racy. Okay, this is one that you'll find on the uh, video playlist, the Top of the Pops appearance, where three of the members of the band look like they're clones of each other. Yeah. That name is just a total misnomer. Yeah, they're as racy as as uh, Paul Evans. Sucks. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're not even yeah. As, they're not even as threatening and sinister as no. Paul Evans. No, they're all got lovely flowing locks and things like that. It's that that kind of mid length hair that was popular in the seventies. But then they break out into this dance routine, knocking the knees together and things like that. That made me think that they're a bunch of clones on the run from Butlins and they found themselves <laughs> on on top of the pops. It's very very summer holiday camp stuff. And then the little routine where Sue from Legs & Co comes on and does a little bit of rock and roll jiving yeah. with the uh, the singer from Racy. And that's that's probably the most racy part mm. of the thing. I'm a big Sue fan, so they, that, that, was, that was a highlight. Yeah, yeah, it's my oh. favourite uh, of Legs & Co pants people. So, yeah, so that was the only highlight of that particular song, I think. I did actually have uh, a single by Racy, but anyway. <laughs> Which one? Some girls do. No, it was uh, their version of Run Around Sue. Ah, right. Yeah, yeah. But it was in one of those lucky dip bags. You, know, you used to get 10 singles for a pound. Fair enough. Yeah. That's all right. That's my excuse anyway. <laughs> uh, and then under it, we got um, Sally Oldfield, Mike Oldfield's sister, with her fairly short, it's a one and only hit, Mirrors. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Which I, I had a vague recollection of and then watched the video of it. Man, that's quite startling. It's got a tubular bells thing going on, or an exorcist thing going on at the beginning. Yeah, it's got a little, all the way through actually. That yeah. kind of tinkling, kind of start, again, slightly sinister kind of. And I looked to see if Mike was involved in it at, at any point. He's not. No, he's, he's not. not. No. Part of the musicians, not part of the production. No, no. nothing. But Sally, uh, well, you pointed out, didn't you, Simon? That she looks like she's dancing around in a nighty. She's in a nighty. Uh, she's escaped from somewhere. And uh, yeah, escape from Paul Evans. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, so that that's <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, she's, she's on the run basically, um, probably barefoot in her night. She's trying to distract Paul Evans uh, with mirrors. She's got a hall yeah. of mirrors, and uh, so he doesn't know where she's gone. And I think later on, Smash Hits might well have described her as bonkers, but of course, at this point, it's a bit more reserved. And you kind of feel that this became a hit because Kate Bush had come along in 1978 and sort of paved the way a little bit mm. for... Um, women you know, in the 90s. Yeah, women in the 90s singing a bit on top of the pops and, yeah, and being a bit floaty. Yeah. and floaty, yeah. yes. Yeah. Actually, I really like this song. I think it's a really good pop song. But anyway. <laughs> no, that's fine. Sorry about that. <laughs> you don't have to apologise. I just have to, you know, get that out there. Yeah, horoscopes in uh, horoscopes in smash hits. No RSVP, but we well, got horoscopes. So, what's yours, Gav? 
Uh, mine's Aries. So uh, mine for that issue, it says, you're feeling good and ready to cope with whatever's coming up. Not the selection stocking again, Ed. Uh, take things as they come and you'll have a great time in the company of new friends. Well, that's that's right now, isn't oh. it? Right, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. What about yourself, Simon? I was, I was, um, I was looking. I was going to look forward to. I was looking forward to an early holiday. Okay. As a as a as a twelve year old, um, I don't know how that was going to work. Well, you know, well, I was tied to the school uh, well, calendar. It was, it was a severe winter. Did it did it close at all that winter? Do you think? No, I don't think so. Because no. my, my school certainly. Did. I did it. Yeah. Right. No, uh, no. We lived in the balmy south. So. Oh well. Then. Um, no such luck. So, an early holiday, yeah. That was their prediction for me, Taurus. And as we know, because Earth, Wind and Fire have already told us when my birthday is, um, I'm, I'm a Virgo. Uh, you may have been thinking about someone you haven't seen for some time. Why not arrange a surprise meeting with an old acquaintance? Well, that Paul Evans. Must, must be you, Kevin. Or, yeah, good, Paul, yeah. <laughs> well, Paul, Paul Evans, I've still got the restraining order out on him, um, I think, as I think as most of the uh, country. Yeah. So, yeah, I think they're quite. Uh, Looking very far into the uh, into the future there, uh, and then we get another kind of misfire on um, a, a band that's in Smash It's that maybe shouldn't be in Smash It's, and that's the Beach Boys with that memorable song "Kona Coast" that we all know and love. <laughs> Classic, <laughs> yeah. It's that uh, one written by uh, Al Jardine and Mike Love, and there's ah, a, that'll be why it's a classic. Yeah, yes. and there's uh, a photo there of the Beach Boys, well, looking like they might have been spending too much time at the barbecue on the beach <laughs> rather than doing any surfing or any kind of physical activity in any way whatsoever. Whatever the opposite of Beach Boys is, that's what they are. There's some choice lyrics in this. There's uh, suntan beauties are everywhere, lovely island ladies with long dark hair. You see, this is more disturbing than Paul Evans. Yeah, well, it yeah, kind of is. And then the next verse, it says, uh, Welcome to the island Mecca. I'll learn to talk like a local, I betcha. Yeah. I mean, it barely rhymes. So basically, it's the Beach Boys on holiday and Hawaii perving over the girls. That's that's basically it, yeah. 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 And, on, and on autopilot as well. It really is on autopilot. Oh, well, it yeah. is absolutely, yeah. It's, it's not even an upload. My other confession is that I... I, I <laughs> I do not like the Beach Boys. So. You don't like the Beach Boys? No, that's my other confession. Sorry about that. No, I'm, I'm not a I big fan. I don't, I don't like them either. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get a headache when I listen to the Beach Boys. I enjoy I enjoy their story. Yeah. I think oh, it's yeah, the, yeah, one, like, one of the most fascinating. On one level, uh, I can appreciate. I love good vibrations. Yeah. yeah but no, I, yeah. I didn't, couldn't even recall that song. And, no, uh, no. I'm sure I'll have forgotten it <laughs> quite soon after today. And that brings us to the end of this very slim edition of Smash Hits. So any closing thoughts about what we've uh, just looked through? I think for me, just what we've already mentioned, really, the fact that you can see the seeds of of where it's going and the the roadmap is kind of pencilled in, but, you know, it's going to take a bit more time to really kind of, to really find its furrow and to find its groove. But I think with better singles coming out and, you know, more and more great singles coming out for, you know, a long time to come. It was really, yeah. the golden age of singles was, was on the horizon and there were already some great ones. And that would just really feed into Smash Hits and it was kind of quite a symbiotic relationship, really. I think the, the great singles plus Smash Hits. And as you said before, making sense of those singles and, and, and also working with Top of the Pops. So for me, it was really interesting. When I first looked, to be honest, I was like, how are we going to get much chat out of this because it felt like <laughs> compared to what we've done on previous uh, editions yeah. where there's a lot more in it and, and this felt like uh, it's going to be tricky but actually um, in terms of as a, as a marking point for where things are going to go there's a lot to talk about so it's been really interesting for me I think Any thoughts from you Simon? No I just like what I said I think it, it's, it's clearly the moment the right moment for it to lift off uh, and it's really interesting to kind of catch it at that very point that it's just about to to develop into something, I suppose, more familiar to us as smash hits. And, you know, you start to get the vocabulary of smash hits and all that kind of thing. But it's all there. It is there. I think it's all all there. You can see the seeds of it. And that's I think that's what makes it interesting. That's a piece of history, I suppose, in terms of smash hits. It's just at that point. And as you say, 79 is going to be such a, a great year for singles. So I think timing is, again, it's key, isn't it? Really, smash it's going to lead, but it also does require as good a crop, perhaps even better crop than 1978 brought forth. 
So in terms of you and Smash Hits, how long did you stay with the magazine? Uh, I stayed with this magazine. My wife, uh, my wife in 88, and she says I was still buying it at that particular <laughs> moment in time. I did fall out of love a little bit in the mid-1980s with it, but that's because I fell out of love with pop, I suppose, at that point. And I, for a while I became a goth and I kind of moved over to the kind of indie stuff. But then I kind of came back to it in the late 80s. And, and it's interesting how the vocabulary of smash hits actually has found its way into the writing that I do. You find yourself sort of using words like bonkers and, you know, sort of <laughs> this and that. You just find yourself doing that, you know, almost automatically because of that, that grounding. Yeah, really, really kind of important, significant kind of part of my cultural life. And with that, our ride on the carousel is at an end. Big thanks to Simon Filo for choosing the issue we've been looking at. You can find him on Twitter. He is at pop underscore society. And thanks to you for listening. Come and say hello to us at Giddy Pop Pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Loads of you have been in touch already, which is amazing. It's always nice to hear from you. And our website is giddypoppod.home.blog where you'll also find the links to scans of the edition of Smash Hits that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists for that extra layer of experience. And, not forgetting, links to previous editions of the podcast. And we hope you can join us next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Bye! Bye!